For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, take a trip on the Colorado River in search of bighorn sheep. Visit the San Javier Mission's East Tower and meet the architect and craftsman who are engaged in the painstaking process of restoration. And a look at what it means to become the first college graduate in your family. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Bighorn sheep disappeared from the Catalinas north of Tucson in the 1990s. Last year, several dozen were relocated back into the mountains. Although the number of bighorns have dwindled across the state, they still roam freely in the Black Mountains of northern Arizona. Twice a year, Zen Makarski takes visitors out on the Colorado River to see those sheep in their natural habitat. Vanessa Barchfield went along for the ride, and here is her story. There are a few things about Zen Makarski you should know. He likes his chewing tobacco and wears a cowboy hat, even indoors. Makarski works in the Kingman office of the Arizona Game and Fish Department, where he runs education and outreach. And when he talks about bighorn sheep, he speaks with the fervor of a preacher. They can lose 30% of their body weight in water and survive. This is impressive. That is more than a camel. This is a true desert animal right here. Makarski likes to share that enthusiasm with people that know a lot less about the animal than he does, the general public. Twice a year, he runs the Desert Bighorn Sheep Workshop. It starts on a Friday evening in the Kingman Library. About 50 people from all over the state are here to listen to Makarski's presentation. He covers general facts about the animals, things like they weigh about the same as a human baby when they're born. Their eyesight is as good as power eight binoculars. They can drink four and a half gallons of water in two minutes. How do they do this? Bighorns don't gingerly lap up water like a cat or a dog. They thrust their entire muzzle into the water. And they go, and they suck it in. And they come down to the water and they they look sickly. And they begin to drink and their whole stomachs go. (laughs) I'm sure everybody here is blowing up a balloon. There you go. It's what it looks like. He also talks about how we humans have threatened the species with our cities and golf courses and highways. Nearby, two major highways, State Routes 68 and 93, slice through some of the richest bighorn habitat in the country. But the reason people come to this workshop isn't to sit in this room. The real program begins on Saturday morning with a drive up that State Route 93 to Willow Beach, a dock on the Colorado River about 12 miles south of Hoover Dam. This is the heart of the Black Mountains and of Bighorn Sheep Territory. At last count, there were about a thousand of them in this region. We'll be out on the water for the next four hours, trying to spot the sheep in their natural habitat. Before we board, snacks are bought, bathrooms are visited one last time, and camera batteries are double and triple checked. Justin! That's him. On Makarski's orders, we head down to the dock and board our boats. Are you ready? I'm ready, are you? Soon we're fighting the current as we head toward Hoover Dam. Makarski shouts out tips for spotting the sheep to the ten of us on his boat. Start looking low, he says, right along the riverbanks. And then move your head up and down. 
uh, when you're looking for them. Look for two things, the white butt and movement. Regarding that white behind, Rocks don't move. the sheep are the same sandy color as the cliffs they live on, blending right into their surroundings except for those white rear ends. And that landscape they're blending into, it's extreme. It's rocky, rugged. It's among the hottest places to be in the United States. Uh, a lot of sheer cliffs, um, jagged edges, this animal navigates through this stuff with such ease it's it it's amazing we all sit with our bodies twisted and torqued looking out at the rocks that surround us scanning up and down and up and down the sky's overcast today keeping temperatures 20 degrees lower than most of us expected though it's still hot mccarsky's worried that that might mean fewer bighorn need to come down to the river for water but then... Oh, there's two of them. I see the white butt now. Did you all see it? There's at least two up there. The engine's killed, and we bob in the water for a few minutes, staring up at them through our binoculars. They don't need binoculars to look down at us. Boy, by the way, how about that for everybody? Jay for Justin? Yay. That's a really good spot. That's a tough one. <laughs> I asked Makarski what it is about these animals. I just really, really like bighorn sheep. They're very majestic. Where they live, I mean, to look and... I mean, if you just take a snapshot of this, this area right here, you're thinking nothing can live there. There's no way anything lives here. And then all of a sudden, out from a pot behind a corner, boom, there, there's a big orange sheep. He says another thing that fascinates him is their ritual head slamming. What's that all about anyway? Uh, they slam heads, it's essentially just for dominance. It's for access to the, to the females. Uh, the most dominant ram, uh, he's the winner. <laughs> so... He gets the females, and occasionally, though, what you'll end up with is a younger ram who's not participating in the battle will go, you guys keep fighting. I'm going to go over here and visit with the ladies, <laughs> and that will happen, actually. So, so sometimes you get the younger rams kind of getting a little sneaky about that. Our journey continues slowly up and then back down the river. While we sit and squint looking for telltale signs, Makarski practices some of his sheep jokes on us. Everybody always asks about sheep falling off these cliffs. They, they live way up there. I said, well, you know, one of our wildlife managers was watching a, a ram chasing a female up on a cliffside. And the female just kept running, running. The ram was chasing, chasing. And all of a sudden, the female turned and the ram went straight off the cliff. Apparently missed the U-turn. Get that? U-turn? my corny joke. Just as we're about to dock, our boat gets word that a large group of ewes and three rams, the biggest group of the day, has been spotted just past Willow Beach. Alright, if you keep going, uh, just pass the gas stop, there's a big herd. We zoom across the spot and sit, silent, in awe, staring up and snapping photos. When we're back on solid land, I ask Makarski how he reconciles his love of these animals, his commitment to preserving the species, with the hunts that his organization permits. Well, hunters are actually paying for conservation. Uh, all the things that are going on are a result of hunting dollars coming into this agency, and which allows us to go out and do many of the things that get done, like helping these sheep recover and helping with the research efforts in regards to getting sheep collared, understanding their movement patterns. Do you consider yourself a conservationist? 
Yes. Uh, the goal is to have all these animals that are here for you and me to see today will be here for the next generations to come. And that's the goal. I mean, we just want them to be here so future generations can enjoy them the same way we did. And I hope you had a good time today seeing all these animals as well. I tell him I did and get into my car to start the five-hour journey from the heart of Bighorn Sheep Country toward Tucson and its Catalina Mountains, where the animals used to thrive. And if all goes to Game and Fish's plan, they might one day again. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. Mission San Javier del Bac, sometimes called the White Dove of the Desert, stands 10 miles south of downtown Tucson on the Tohono O'odham Indian Reservation. The mission was established by Jesuit priest Father Kino in 1692. Work began on the present building in 1783. Today it remains an active church for its parishioners, and people come from all over the world to visit the mission year-round. It's considered the highest expression of Spanish colonial architecture in the United States. But maintaining its structural integrity has been a mission all its own. Here's Mitchell Riley with the story. 81-year-old Sonny Morales is a third-generation Mason. He learned bricklaying from his father, and he learned this from his grandfather. He says three things in life for you to live a long time, he says. Eat three meals a day, he says. Get your eight hours of sleep and work your butt up because you were born on the poor side and you work and you live a long time. His son Daniel represents the fourth generation. He's the project manager for restoration efforts at the mission. The Morales family of Masons have worked to restore this 200-year-old church on and off for decades. Daniel took the reins when his father Sonny stepped down in 2000. My father is still working with us part-time. You know, he just few hours a day, he's still at it. Um, he's always worked, you know, all his life. We get to work on something that's special to a lot of people, you know. People come from all over the world here and visit this place. And, you know, you see their expressions of what they, what they see out here in the desert, you know. This monument that stands out. It's special enough that government officials featured an artist's rendition of San Javier at the center of the Pima County seal, as did the city of Tucson. We're actually putting in control joints now into the dome. Morales led restoration work on the West Tower, which began in January of 2003. That work continued for six years at a cost of nearly $3 million. The scaffolding came down in December of 2008, just in time for Christmas concerts. It was also just in time for an economic downturn. And this has taken us a long time, and it, you know, people say, well, why is it taking so long? You know, maybe it's time you should find a new architect. Well, the pace of our work is limited by the amount of funding that we have. Bob Vent has been the preservation architect at San Javier del Bac for the past 25 years. He's worked with adobe structures in particular for nearly 30 years. One thing we've learned is that you need to use 
ancient materials for ancient buildings. You can't use modern materials. They end up doing more harm than good. While done with good intentions, efforts during the 1950s and 60s involved, among other things, the use of cement and rubberized roofing paint, which failed. With the cement, moisture gets inside and then it has no way to escape. What we learned in the subsequent decades was that underneath this hard uh, coat of cement and sand plaster that was applied, the old soft brick was being eaten up. Vince Research has identified materials and methods of construction that are compatible with the mission and appropriate for its restoration. We're returning to the traditional plaster of lime and sand and then lime washing it as a finish. The purpose of the lime and sand uh, plaster is to provide a skin to protect the brick, but a breathing skin, one that's not going to trap moisture, and one that's not incompatible in terms of its hardness, its strength, its density. And that's where, again, we're maintaining that uh, brilliant white appearance, which I think is part of why it's so impressive against the blue sky. It makes the sky look bluer. And there's one unusual ingredient with a local origin. We're also adding in this folkloric ingredient, which is the nopal cactus mucilage, the famous cactus juice. And essentially it is a fluidifier. It's, uh, it makes the mortar handle better when the masons are putting on the wall. I believe what it does is it slows the drying time of the lime plaster. If it dries too quickly, it doesn't fully cure. The restoration work is done by hand. It takes time and patience. The head of our masonry crew, uh, Danny Morales, I've been with him when he'll open up a piece of wall with a hammer and chisel and a, just a, a spurt of red dust will come out because the, the brick is disintegrated. In this kind of work, you don't know what you're going to find, you know, until you open it up. And once you open it up, you know, sometimes you find something that's more damaged than, than you thought. You have to be very careful because if you make the wrong move, you may take a few steps back. It's been nearly seven years since work finished on the West Tower. Now they plan to restore the East Tower. From afar, you can see the difference in the color between the two. Inside the East Tower, you can see its decline. It's just a cornice that holds the ledge. It's in between the arch. It's in bad shape. I mean, it's got the concrete all over the floor. And this is paint right there. Uh, they had put some paint on it, a tough text, I believe it was at the time. The pace of the work is limited by the amount of money available. For the past two decades, that funding has come from donations to Patronato San Javier, a non-sectarian, non-profit organization founded by Southern Arizona community leaders. The Patronato has on hand about $800,000, which would get us through about a year and a half of working with our crew. We have estimated it's a $3 million project, and we expect it to take five years. Funds for the restoration don't co-mingle with the coffers of the Catholic parish at San Javier. The Patronato and the church are separate entities. It is, however, an active church where mass is held each day, and worshipers come to practice their faith. Others come curious and uh, just whether Catholic or not, uh, find a quiet place to sit and, and pray and think in their own way. Father Stephen Barnufsky is a Franciscan friar and the pastor at San Javier. He embraces the confluence of people and cultures that make their way here. One day there were some Buddhist monks in there and they were just sitting and absorbing, I guess, huh? um, and people from other faith traditions who 
uh, just, just find it to be a, a peaceful place. You know, it's, it's wonderful to have a historic building, but to still have that place functioning as a place for spiritual fulfillment is to me really important. Morales and his crew have begun their work inside the East Tower. When that work is complete, scaffolding will go up on the exterior and the restoration will continue. Mission San Javier del Bac is a recognized national landmark and the oldest building of European origin in the state of Arizona. The mission, I think, also is significant, not only because of its age, but because it was built on a frontier. It, this was at the edge of the known world for the Spanish. It was the edge of their empire. I also think it's just, it's a symbol of community. It's the center of this village of Bac, San Javier del Bac. Bac is the Native American place name. But because it stands in isolation, you can still experience it. And I, I, I really feel that coming down to our mission, San Javier del Bac, is, a, is, is traveling back in time. It's like you can walk into the 18th century. For architect Bob Vent, this iconic structure is nothing short of an inspiration. Architecturally, it's spectacular. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful buildings anywhere, I think, on the face of the earth. And I mean, the proportions of it, uh, the details of it, you know, it's got this uh, beautiful verticality um, in the openings, the slenderness of the arches. So it, it really is the, I think, the ultimate work of architecture and art. And let's not forget, architecture is art. For Daniel Morales, the restoration has been a life's work. His son, Vincent, represents the fifth generation of Masons to practice their trade on the mission. Morales will have to hand over the reins someday. Yes, and I'll hand it down to my son, Vincent, currently, um, if he chooses to. If he chooses not to, well, maybe a grandchild or something. Either way, he has faith in the mission's future. Well, I'd like to see all of it get completed and then hopefully taken care of when I'm long gone. I'm Mitchell Riley for Arizona Spotlight. That was a radio adaptation of a story Mitchell Riley produced for Arizona Illustrated. You can see video of the East Tower Restoration Project online at azpm.org. Every freshman faces big challenges during their first year of college. The responsibility required of them to succeed can bring many rewards, something that bears special emphasis for students who are the first in their family to attend college. I asked Gail Bird, a professor of biology and the senior vice provost at the University of Arizona, to share her story about becoming the first in her family to graduate and the factors that helped Bird decide to pursue a career in academia. When I was in high school in New Jersey, students were tracked into college prep or vacational classes. I was lucky to be in the classes with college prep students. I joined a variety of clubs and interacted with my fellow students in student council, flag twirling, field hockey, honor society, and yearbook, among others. I was popular, even elected by the student body to be homecoming queen, and learned about the plans for college from my friends. It probably helped that I wanted to be an elementary school teacher since I was in grade school, and this requires a college degree. My parents didn't know anything about college. My father had a ninth grade education, was in the service in World War II, and worked shifts as a control board operator at Union Carbine in Southbound Brook. 
My mother graduated from high school, worked for a few years until she married my father, but then stopped working and didn't drive. My parents gave me and my sister a lot of independence. We would spend days with our friends in the woods behind the ho our home collecting tadpoles, frogs, fish, even snakes. Though when my sister came home with a baby copperhead, snakes were no longer allowed. I remember one day bringing home a bowl of baby fish to show my dad and having him tell me, I hate to break it to you, Gail, but these are mosquito larvae. My father did not make much money and often took a part-time job in addition to his full-time job. But every summer, our family took vacations to Racket Lake in the Adirondacks in New York. I think I only applied to one school, Trenton State College. Now it's called the College of New Jersey. I learned that it had a good program in elementary education, and I could live at home and commute to school. With the help of financial aid from the state of New Jersey and waitress jobs, I put myself through college. One hears about the challenges first-generation students face when they go to college, in part because they did not grow up with parents who could appreciate the challenges of college. I was lucky to have parents who supported my independence and helped me understand that if you want something, you need to earn it. Also, I somehow grew up with a can-do approach to life and significant self-motivation. Again, in college, I was lucky to receive support from others. The first semester, I had a dynamic, energetic female professor, Dr. Carol Argood. I loved the class. The next semester, still as an elementary education major, but in second semester general biology, Dr. Argood came into my biology lab. Although not teaching the course that semester, she wanted to talk to me. She said she didn't understand why I was in elementary education, since I clearly enjoyed biology. I told her I wasn't sure. Knowing my real love at the time was marine biology, she arranged for me to take two summer courses at the Sandy Hook Marine Station in New Jersey. I received some financial aid for the tuition and a part-time job as a janitor to pay the other expenses. In summary, I could not have gone to college and been successful if my parents had not encouraged my independence and my professors had not cared enough to mentor and encourage me toward a career in biology. As they say, the rest is history. The portrait that you paint of your family life growing up sounds like it was very vibrant. And even if education wasn't an important status symbol, say, to your parents, learning was important to them. Would you say that's true? Yes, that's absolutely true. They supported our exploration of various kinds of things, too. It seems like a recipe for success for students, first generation or not. It's a simple recipe, yet it's hard to get right. What would you say about the formulas that you've seen in your role here at the University of Arizona that really seem to work? Engagement and having grit, having the interest in succeeding and the ability to pick yourself back up when you failed. Those are really important characteristics in succeeding. Being engaged in campus activities is also really important. Although I didn't do activities uh, like um, flag twirling or honor society when I was in college, I worked many jobs and also I was able to get involved in a research project uh, on campus and that really hooked me to science. Were you able to share your academic success with your parents? Did they see you graduate? They did see me graduate from undergrad. I, When I got my PhD, they didn't come and I actually didn't even go to it myself. <laughs> um, they couldn't quite understand what I was doing for my PhD, but they were um, 
uh, honored, I guess, impressed in some way that their daughter had succeeded. What would you say about how the student body has changed in your time at the university? What are you seeing more of an emphasis being placed on now as opposed to when you started? From the point of view of the faculty, I think what we're really trying to do is to help the students learn, to give them the best approaches to uh, engage the students in areas that they're interested in and, and capture that interest, that they all want to know something, but what is it they want to know, and help them find their way. What major? As I, as I changed my major from elementary education to biology, um, I did that knowing what I was interested in doing after I experienced it. How much different do you think your academic career might have been had you had access to smartphones and the internet when you were studying? Ah, very interesting question. Um, I can't quite say because um, the approach that we're trying to take for learning here, face-to-face learning, is really to have students engaged with each other and with the faculty member. And it's not all about the technology. It's about their interaction with the material. I think the major influx um, into the way students are learning now is the internet. They don't even know where the library is except to go and meet their friends. Uh, The library is really a spectacular place for helping the students find the kind of information they need and helping students interact. But the internet has changed much of what I was able to do as a student. But we really want students to interact with each other, not through technology, but with each other. You talked about the importance of mentorships and having a connection with your instructors and professors. But can you give us an idea of how those mentorships can be formed? I mean, we all think about the amount of time that the professors have to spend with individual students is very limited. But what's a way that that connection was formed in your life that helped you and made an impact? It's pretty amazing how little a faculty member has to say or how short the interaction can be with a student and have a major impact. I mean, one short conversation with my professor, Carol Argood, encouraged me to change my major. And she opened doors that allowed me to explore biology in ways that I didn't know existed. It wasn't a lot of effort on her part, um, but she took that interest in her students. And I think it doesn't really take that much effort from, for the faculty to comment to students in ways that can change their life. Gail Bird is the Senior Vice Provost for Academic Affairs and a Distinguished Professor in Molecular and Cellular Biology at the University of Arizona. There is an online community that provides a place for first-generation college students to share stories, advice, and support. You can find it at imfirst.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. <laughs>